Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 29, or it's printed for you in the bulletin. <clears throat> We're winding down our study of the book of Exodus, and we'll transition into Advent and ultimately in the study of the book of Revelation. But this morning, Exodus 35, 20 to 29, we've read these verses already in the past, but we didn't comment on them there. In God's providence, he's brought us this passage in this stewardship season. Every November, we, in the harvest season, remember our privilege to participate in giving giving back to the Lord and stewarding the gifts that he has given to us. The first week we looked at the stewardship of relationships or sometimes called politics where we are called to gather ourselves together and organize for the doing of good, for the glory of God and for the good of those made in his image. And then we looked last week at the stewardship of our, of our vocations or the stewardship of our callings. God, the opportunities, the, the skills, the gifts, the abilities that God has given to us. And today we're looking at his, the stewardship we have, the stewardship privilege of the material resources he gives to us. How may these be given back to him in praise to be multiplied for his kingdom's sake? We begin reading in verse 20 of Exodus 35. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any kind in the use of the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair, and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, all the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who, along with her family, was imprisoned in the concentration camp during the Holocaust because she and her family protected and hid Jews whom the Nazis were seeking. She and her family were eventually found out and they were taken to the concentration camp. She miraculously survived that horrible experience. And for the next many years of her life, she 
testified all over the world to God's grace, not only his grace of protection, but his grace of saving her and the privilege of giving praise back for that and especially for the gift it is to forgive, to extend grace to others who have wronged us. She was a bright, bright light for the gospel. She had an aunt, a sister of her father, whom she called affectionately Zanzi Jans, something like Auntie Anne, Zanzi Jans. Zanzi Jans was a Christian. Uh, She uh, wrote gospel tracts. She spoke uh, all over Holland. She she gave lots of money to Christian causes and ministries and institutions, and she loved to brag about it. As Corey Ten Boom said, Zanzians was a Christian, though when you were in her presence, you didn't find yourself thinking about Jesus. So when Zanzians was, was uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness, the physician told the family, I guess he didn't have the nerve to tell her, and they had to tell her, and they were expecting a torrid response, expecting anger. And they made their strategy. They would remind her of the good things she had done. So they came in to tell her, Zanzians, we have bad news for you. You're going to die. But, but remember, remember, you've lived a full life. Uh, you, you've given so much for the Lord. You've blessed people all over the country. country. The people are going to kind of heap their praise and thanks on you for what you've done for them. The institutions you've supported, the many Christian works you've sponsored, she shushed them. She raised up her hands and told them to stop talking. And then she cried. Empty, empty, she said. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And then she lifted up her hands. And through her tears, she said, Dear Jesus, I thank you. We must come to you with empty hands. I thank you that you, you have done it all. You have done it all on the cross. And all we need in life and in death is to be sure of this. They weren't prepared for such a humble, worshipful response. But Zanzians illustrates the attitudes that the Lord wants from us in giving. She illustrates the two roles of Christ, the dual roles, the overlapping roles that, that of Christ that should provoke us to generous giving. That Christ is Lord and that Christ is Savior. Those are the attitudes that were finally brought to Zanzian's as she was facing her end. And those are the attitudes that, that are prescribed in the Bible and they're even prescribed in this Old Testament text. Yes, that Christ is Lord and Christ is the Savior. Let me remind you of what we've learned already in our study of the book of Exodus. It's not anachronistic to say that Christ is Lord. You say he hasn't even been revealed yet. He hasn't even come in the flesh. This is many hundreds of years before that. But we learned early on in our study of the book of Exodus that Jude, the brother of our Lord, in his little book in the New Testament says in verse 5, 
And let me remind you, he says, let me remind you of something that you have obviously forgotten, that Jesus led a people out of Egypt. Jesus led a people out of Egypt. Jesus, the, the second person of the Godhead, the one who brings the will of God to bear on earth, the one who is the mediator between God and man, the one who applies the redemption that God deign to give to us. That is the one who moved Moses to come to Egypt, moved through Moses to lead them out, moved to get them across the wilderness. He manifested himself in the cloud and in the, and the pillar of fire and through the rock and through the bread. Christ was revealing himself as the one who would bring salvation to earth. And now with this description of the way the tabernacle would be built, the, 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 the coming of Christ is anticipated, the one whom John said would put on flesh and tabernacle among us. It is because Jesus is Lord we must give and give generously. Jesus is obviously Lord from the New Testament. He said in giving us the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. John said... Uh, uh, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father. Everything that has been made was made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. He was a part of the creation. In Him, all things hold together every particle of the universe. Christ is Lord. That means He is sovereign and supreme and, and the ruler over all things, including our lives and our possessions. The Lord is king. So this king says to the people, and it's even clearer in, in Exodus chapter 25 where this, this command was originally given. <clears throat> in Exodus 25, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. I am the Lord. I've brought them out. Tell them to bring a contribution to me. But then he follows with this. From every person whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. What a strange thing for the Lord of all the universe to say. I command that everyone give back to me what is owed to me, but only those with a willing heart. This is a sovereign king, one who doesn't need anything, one who gives us life and breath and everything else, but doesn't need anything from the hands of those who would give back to him. This is the Lord giving a command with an invitation to say, I've given you everything that you have so that you would have something with which to worship me, but I only want you to give it out of your free will, out of your heart stirring. I want, I don't want your stuff, I want your heart. And your stuff, your parting with your stuff, your willingness to part with your stuff indicates where your heart is. He is the Lord not only of our possessions, he's the Lord of, of all our giving. 
He's the one who invites us into this giving. And Paul applies these principles of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 16, for instance, as he's talking to the Corinthians about challenging them to give as the Macedonians gave. The Corinthians were rich. The Macedonians were poor. But the Macedonians had given a very generous gift to, for the relief of those famine-stricken in Jerusalem while the Corinthians had not given anything. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, I want you to set something aside every week in keeping with your income. That's all he says. I want you to set something aside every week in keeping with your income. He, he by that, commands us to, to make plans, to, to give intentionally and regularly. The first day of that week is, is, is mentioned because it was the day of Christian worship because it's the day on which Christ was raised for, to life. And he says, I want you to, I want you to get, put your mind to it. I want you to plan. I want you to plan to give. Put something aside. In keeping with your income, that's all the, that's all the, the guidance he gives. He doesn't even say, I want you to give 10%. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament does it prescribe giving of 10%. It's assumed it's assumed throughout the ages that 10% is a minimum gift of benevolence. Even foreign religions prescribe that if you, take a, if you, if you pull up a guideline budget, the typical guideline budget on the website, and even from a secular site, you'll find that the suggested benevolence is 10%. It's somehow woven into our consciences that, that, uh, that we're not supposed to consume everything but leave something. It harkens back to the gleaning laws that we are to consume everything for ourselves but leave something for the poor, the poor of spirit, the poor physically, the poor uh, spiritually. Now, 10% may be a guide, but he says, I want you to, I want you to give in response to the lordship of Christ. Now, sometimes the way that is preached is this way. The Lord demands 10%. He gives you 90%, but he demands 10% back because he is the Lord. Let me ask you, is that, does that sound like the gospel to you? Does that sound like really good news? Let me ask it this way. Suppose we were to say we're going to have a marriage conference and we're going to show the gospel is good news for marriage. And you get to the conference and, and the, the consistent theme is this, do not commit adultery. That's the theme. That's the good news of marriage. Do not commit adultery. It wouldn't be very inspiring. No, it's assumed. It's the bare minimum. Don't commit adultery. But there's better news than that from the gospel for marriage. In your marriage, you have the privilege of illustrating to the world the love of Christ and His church. Or suppose we had a work conference and we said, Here's the, we're going to give you the good news for work. And the good news for work is, is uh, don't be lazy. Well, that's a, that's a minimum requirement. Don't be lazy. That's a good idea. But there's better news than that. The good news for your work is that if it's done for the glory of God, God can establish it as eternally significant, just as we learned last week. So is the best thing that we can say about giving is you better give 10%. No, here is what, here is what the Lordship of Christ should motivate us to. Christ the Lord is saying, God 
is saying in this Old Testament passage, I am giving you the privilege of participating with me in bringing my kingdom to bear on the earth. I could create this tabernacle out of nothing. I've made the whole world. But I'm including you, your resources that I've put in your hands to begin with, but I'm including you. And what I want you to do is build a place by which I'm going to com- come to you. I'm going to, I'm going to show you that I am with you. And you're going to testify to the nations that I am with you. I'm going to testify that I'm the forgiver of sins. And, and so he continues on in the New Testament that he includes us in the building of the church. He includes us in the bringing of the kingdom to bear on earth. And so he says, as the Lord, he says, I want you to be encouraged. I don't, I don't want you to get hung up on politics or your, your own inadequacies. What I want you to focus on is I am the Lord, and I'm going to fulfill my promise to bring my kingdom, and I'm going to include you in the dignity and the privilege of building it with me. And so I'm going to put into your lives and into your, into your bodies and your minds and into your vocation. I'm going to give you resources by which you're going to with, that you're going to share. And you bring them to the church. And by combining them in the church, your resources in the church, I'm going to multiply. You're going to be able to do things through, through your membership in the church, your connection in the church. You're going to be able to do things that you could never do on your own. You're going to be able to, to touch the poor. You're going to be able to put families together. You're going to be able to lead people to Christ. You're going to be able to, you're going to, be able to take the gospel to the, to the nations, even to China. You're going to, you, 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 can, you can give your money to the Second Presbyterian Foundation, pool your money with big wads of other money, and it's going to be multiplied, and, and you'll be able to support the partnership ministries of this church and around the world in ways that you never could have with just your own money. Effectively, he says, come on in, join me. This is joyful work. God joyfully redeemed and redeems. God so loved the world, he didn't give 10% of his son. He gave his son. He gave his whole son. And he did it with joy. What did the angels say when they announced to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Where did they learn that joy? From heaven. They saw it in the face of God. And he says, I am enjoying bringing the kingdom to earth. Join me in that joy. That's the way the lordship of Christ should motivate us to give. And not just the lordship of Christ, but Christ as Savior. You notice these, uh, these uh, the people of Israel did something they, they're, they're not prone to do, and that was to obey immediately and eagerly. As soon as Moses said, remember, I told you this many chapters ago, but remember God is inviting you to participate in the building of his tabernacle, and he barely got the words out of his mouth, and they rush off in verse 20 from his presence. Why are they doing that? They're not running away holding their pocketbooks. They're running to their homes to gather resources to bring them in joyful response to grace. How do I know that? How do I know that they're joyfully responding to grace? Because these words are repeated. 
They were given originally in chapter 25. And God uh, was revealing the law to Moses and the covenant to Moses. And he was saying, look, I'm, I'm going to give you the commandments by which you will, you will find life and life will go well with you. And, and then I'm giving you the ceremonial law and the tabernacle. And this is going to encourage you that I'm in your midst. I'm going to remind you that I'm your God. I have fellowship with you. I forgive your sins. And while he's giving this law, the people down below in the valley take the gold jewelry that was given to them by God in order to give back to him for the tabernacle and they melted it down and made a calf a God. And they debased themselves in front of it. And God said, Moses, I want you to step out of the way. I'm going to kill all of them and we'll just start over. And Moses said, you can't do that. He's, he's acting in the in, in, the, in the stead of Christ, he is, he's mediating for the people. You can't do that. Wipe me out of your book before you wipe them out of your book. Please have mercy. Remember your promises to them. And so he sends Moses back down, and Moses breaks the tablets of the law. Not he is certainly angry, but he breaks the tablets of the law as a message from God. You have broken my covenant. Not only have you broken the laws, the commandments I've given you, but you've broken all of the architectural renderings of the tabernacle by which I'm going to draw near to you. It's over. The covenant is finished. It's broken. But in response to Moses' mediation, he forgives. And now he comes back in chapter 35. And he says to the people, let's start again. Right? You sinned, you broke the covenant, but I am renewing the covenant and I'm going to give you the tabernacle. I'm going to draw near to you. I'm going to forgive your sins. When they hear that news, they run to their homes and they gather the resources and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, with out of their own hearts that are stirred and moved by their own free will, they give these offerings in response to salvation. It's exactly the point that Paul makes in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 when he's describing the giving of the Macedonian believers, those impoverished Christians who gave, he said, out of their poverty. In fact, he says in chapter 8 verse 4, they begged us for the privilege of giving. Paul was effectively saying, look, you're poor. You don't need to give anything to this. They said, they begged him, we want to participate. And in so doing, he says in Chapter 8, verses 8 and 24, they proved their love for Christ and for the brethren. These Gentiles proved their love for the Jews. The Jews were, were, were convinced that the conversion had genuinely come to the Gentiles by this giving, and it overflowed with thanksgiving to God. In chapter 9, verse 13, he says, their confession... Their confession, the confession of their faith, the proof, the reality that they were converted was that they gave generously. The reason God says, I want you to give generously is, is I want you to prove to the world that I've saved you. The one who has been saved, the one who is living in the reality of that of that gospel is not one whose arm has to be twisted. 
It's one who gives spontaneously, generously, and joyfully. Robert Murray McShane, a famous Scottish preacher who died at the age of 29, but whose sermons and his missionary heart, his, his zeal for living for Christ continues to inspire today, wrote uh, or, or preached, was preaching to his congregation once. He was trying to awaken them to the needs of the poor in their city. And he said, I am concerned for the poor, but I'm more concerned for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in the great day. I fear there are many hearing me who may know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. And oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. These in this Exodus passage proved that they had not only been redeemed from Egypt physically, but they had been redeemed from Egypt's selfishness internally. Just as the Macedonians proved that they had been redeemed by the mercy of Christ because they, they couldn't, no one could stop them from giving and giving cheerfully. And the Corinthians would prove their salvation. We would prove their regeneration by giving in glad response to the one though he was rich became poor that through their poverty they might become rich. Occasionally, God allows us the privilege of seeing just a glimpse into eternity, of seeing the fruit of our labors, the fruit of our gifts on this earth. I had that <clears throat> rare privilege a number of years ago when I was a pastor in, in St. Louis. We were having a, a world missions conference, and a friend of mine from South Florida a veteran pastor came up and preached our World Missions Conference. And we were at lunch uh, that afternoon, and, and he said, I noticed a congreer in the passage, in the, in the, in the, in the sanctuary. And uh, congreer was in her 90s then. She had left as a young woman to go from our church down to South Florida to help start this church. And then, and then she came back many years afterwards. She was in poor health and needed extra care. She came back and rejoined our church. And he had been her pastor for that time. She was in Naples. He said, my, my favorite story about Khan is that, is that on one occasion, a, a, a woman came into our congregation, a single woman with two children came into our congregation and she did immediately stand out as a visitor to our church. They were in a wealthy part of town, and, and this woman was homeless with two children, and she was a prostitute. She came into that congregation, and they surrounded her with their love. They welcomed her right in. And they began to meet her physical needs and material needs. They led her to faith in Christ. She joined their church. And uh, their church being divided up in parishes as it was, the, the, the particular elder in whose parish she was living was a single man. And eventually over the years they fell in love and they got married. He adopted her children. He said, my, my, my. another part of that story is that 
Khan is the one who they still had a meager income and Khan is the one who paid for those girls to go through Christian school from elementary through high school and then paid their college tuition in a Christian college. She never did anything more than work as a librarian. She lived a very Spartan lifestyle so that she could give away as much as she could. She paid their tuition all through college anonymously. I said, could you tell me the names of those two girls you're describing? He, he mentioned their names and I said, you'll never believe it, but those two girls are now women and they have married Christian husbands. They met in college. They have children of their own and they just moved back to St. Louis and they've joined our church too. I said, can I tell each side the story? He said, certainly. They weren't there that weekend for the missions conference. So several weeks later, I saw my opportunity. The two women and their husbands and children were out in the gathering space and through the lobby came Khan and I she was shuffling along with her walker and back bent over with osteoporosis and I said I'd like you to introduce you Khan to some new members would you welcome them into our church she was all too glad to do it I took her over and I said um, to the, the the women this is Khan Greer you've never known her name but she's the one who paid for your entire education. She was surprised by the girls. The girls were surprised by the, by the benefactor, and it was a taste of heaven where she was able to, to see the fruit of her sacrifices with women marrying Christian men having children they're raising in the gospel, leaders in the church, and she was able to see this side of heaven, the fruit of her labor. That's the joy of giving. You may not always see it in this life, but the day is coming. It will stand before King Jesus, the Lord, and the Savior. And when we see him in the flesh, and when we see the fruit of our labors, not only in souls that were saved, but works that we've done for His glory that are somehow shaped into gold for all of eternity. We'll never think, I wish I'd kept more for myself. But rather, why didn't I give more? Why didn't I do more? What a privilege. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, remind us that our lives are but a vapor here today and gone in an instant. We only have so much time to give back to you out of the abundance our hearts feel. Only so much time to build treasure in heaven, crowns in heaven, not for our own glory, but crowns that we can throw at your feet. Works that we can point to and say, those are yours. Oh, Lord, capture us afresh with the gospel. In Jesus' name, we pray and God's people said together, amen.